0: From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
1: Nuclear plays an important role, but so does obviously wind and solar combined with storage of wind and solar since those are intermediate resources. The sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow.
0: That's Jennifer Granholm. She is the United States Secretary of Energy Granholm has had a distinguished career in public service, as a federal prosecutor in Michigan, attorney general, and then governor of that state from 2003 to 2011. Now she leads the Department of Energy, where she's at the tip of the spear in the fight against climate change. Plus, folks might not know that her department also maintains the nation's nuclear weapons. We discuss Granholm's vision for a clean energy future, how the Inflation Reduction Act could help achieve President Biden's goal of net zero carbon emissions by 2050, and where gas prices could be headed next. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills Aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion, Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org/future to learn more and support their cause.
2: This episode is brought to you by State Farm.
0: Hey folks, before I get to your questions, I have kind of an exciting announcement. Believe it or not, next month marks the five-year anniversary of Stay Tuned with Preet. Now, I'll tell you, when we started this thing, we had no idea what it would become. Now, nearly 300 episodes later, we've heard from everyone under the sun, from journalists to academics, to politicians, to filmmakers. But to commemorate this milestone, I want to hear from you, our listeners. I read your emails and tweets every week so I know how thoughtful you are. You are the reason I love doing this show. So here's my request. Please send us a short voicemail reflecting on your favorite Stay Tuned moment or guest or anything else that struck you about the show. What made a lasting impression on you? Who did you find funny or smart? Was there an episode that made you think differently about justice or the rule of law? We'll edit the best voicemails together and play them on air during our anniversary episode please keep them to less than 60 seconds. You can leave me a voicemail at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. One more time, that's 669-247-7338. We look forward to hearing from you and thanks as always for your support. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes from Twitter user at this person asks, can anything good come of releasing even a redacted version of the affidavit? And obviously, you must be referring to the affidavit that everyone is talking about in America. And that is the affidavit that was submitted in support of a request to search the premises at Mar-a-Lago for various classified documents. That's what's been on my mind and a lot of people's minds and a focus of the podcast for the last number of weeks. So can anything good come of releasing a version of the affidavit? Well, I suppose, and I'm not advocating that it should be released... I suppose on the one hand, public interest will be vindicated. You know, the the parties that are seeking the release of the affidavit are media entities, and I am, among other things, part of the media. I think that if people were able to see the probable cause set forth in some detail in the affidavit, they would gain a greater understanding of the legitimacy of the search, of the urgency of the search, the conduct, depending on your perspective, misconduct of the former president and people around him what's at stake. So public understanding would be deepened and maybe some of the criticism would look like it was unfounded of the FBI and other folks who I think were just doing their jobs and following the law and following the facts after a lot of lack of cooperation from Donald Trump and his team. So I guess that's a good thing. But of course, as the judge has clearly pointed out both last week and also earlier this week, there are things to be weighed on the other side of the coin as well. As the government has pointed out, And as the judge has confirmed, some of those factors deserve weight. Releasing the affidavit could undermine the integrity of the investigation, which is ongoing. It could give a roadmap to the investigation for other people who are under investigation. It could chill cooperating witnesses from coming forward because they don't want their identities to be revealed. And something else the judge also seems sensitive to is that it might do harm or cause risk of harm to witnesses who have come forward, whose identities might become known through social media and otherwise. Now, we're talking about what good would come to the public, what good would come or not come to the government's investigation. We left one party out, and that's Donald Trump himself. Although he remained silent at the court hearing last week, and the lawyer said nothing about the former president's wishes with respect to the affidavit, in a separate motion filed this week, Trump's lawyers pointed out that Donald Trump on social media has advocated for the release of an unredacted version of the affidavit. So for him... What good might come of that? I think very little. I agree with others who are saying that the former president wants to look like he's posturing for transparency, but is really not. Because it will likely be true that if any or all of the affidavit is released, it will show the degree of malfeasance on the part of Trump and others. It will show, as I mentioned, the importance of the material that has been kept from the government. It will show how involved Donald Trump himself may have been. Uh, And all of that It's to Donald Trump's detriment. So can anything good come of it? Yeah, public understanding would be increased, but I think it would be bad for the government's investigation. And it would probably be bad for Trump's reputation as well. This question comes in an email from Peter who says, Hi, I have a question. If Donald Trump were to announce he's running for president, would it be wise for Merrick Garland to appoint a special counsel? That's sort of interesting. Part of it may depend on which investigation that special counsel would be focusing on. We now, I think, are clear to say that there are two different things the Department of Justice is looking at with respect to Donald Trump. One, what we've been talking about for a bit of time, the investigation relating to classified material, sensitive material, that was secreted at Mar-a-Lago, about which there has been a very, very notorious and famous search. But then separately, Donald Trump and the people around him, their involvement in the insurrection of January 6th, those are separate and distinct. And there are investigations clearly underway with respect to both of those. And I guess if I take your question broadly, does anything change if Donald Trump announces he's running for president? No, I don't think so. It's something you always want to consider, but a couple of points I'd make. One, both investigations have been undertaken by existing personnel within the Justice Department. And they're perhaps pretty far along. I think the classified documents investigation is pretty far along. Donald Trump, although he's not an announced candidate for president, He's presumptively someone who could run for president. He's made noises about running for president. So the sensitivities and difficulties that attend investigating somebody who's going to be a political candidate of a major party already exist, whether he's technically announced he's running or not. And I would point out obviously the most recent example, you don't always have to follow recent examples, but the most recent example of a nominee for president of the United States by a major political party was Hillary Clinton. And as everyone knows, There was a deep and robust investigation of her handling of classified documents, and there was no appointment of a special counsel in that case. So I think the die has been cast. There's already water under the bridge with respect to both of those investigations. And I think it might be disruptive to appoint a special counsel, which by itself is controversial, as a lot of people disagreed about the role of Bob Mueller, the last special counsel appointed by an attorney general. So, folks, every week I look at all the questions that get emailed to us or posted on Twitter under the hashtag AskPreet. And most of the time, almost all the time, I don't know who the person is. They're anonymous listeners who are loyal and have curiosity about things going on in the law or politics or a democracy. And I do my best to take a sampling of them and answer as best as I can. Every once in a while, someone tweets a question, and I know the person, or at least not personally. I know of the person. And every once in a while, not too frequently, The person asking the question is an American icon. And this week, in response to my perennial tweet, what questions do you have for Stay Tuned this week? We got a question from none other than actor, director, Henry Winkler. That's right, Arthur Fonzarelli, who most recently has a star turn in one of my favorite series, Barry. So I want to answer his question as best as I can, but I also wanted to brag that Henry Winkler, the Fonz, is a fan of the show. His question is, it's a very narrow, simple question to answer. Henry Winkler writes, will we as a country come to our senses? Question mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. That's that's a very, very good question. And it's the question that I think we occupy ourselves with every week on the show, going on almost five years. It's one of the reasons why we started Stay Tuned and the Insider Podcast uh, and why I tweet a bunch on that platform because I wonder the direction our country is going in. So I always have to be hopeful that the country will go in a better direction and things will get better, or as Henry Winkler puts it, come to our senses. I think one solution in that regard is voting for better people, whatever side of the aisle you're on. You'll hear me at the end of the show talk about voting a little bit, and some trends give me hope. I think our country can only come to our senses if we come together as a country. and. I don't have the answer to how you do that in the short term. I do think that the work of lots and lots of good people, and in particular young people, which I emphasize on the show on a regular basis, can cause folks who've had their head in the sand to take their head out of the sand. Henry Winkler's question is broad enough that he could be talking about many different things, but I'll give you a note of optimism on climate change. That question could easily be directed to that one policy issue. And in that regard, the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act As advocated for and beautifully explained by Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm and other polling that shows that people are, in fact, in this country and elsewhere, coming to their senses, gives me some hope. So if we can make the kind of progress we made on that issue, not bringing everyone along, but enough people along, that real change can take place, real transformative legislation can be passed, then I think, yeah, we as a country can come to our senses. And I have this thought that if Henry Winkler is listening to this, he's nodding and saying, Correcto Mundo! We'll be right back with my conversation with Jennifer Granholm. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact-check this, that Ogden Hoffman, who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking, what does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com preet. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. As governor of Michigan during the financial crisis in 2008, Jennifer Granholm was widely credited with turning around that state by investing in alternative energy resources. Upon nominating her to lead the Department of Energy in December 2020, President Biden said of Granholm,
1: — She faced the collapse of the defining industry of her state and our nation. Well, I saw firsthand how she responded. She bet on the auto workers. She bet on the promise of a clean energy future.
0: Madam Secretary Jennifer Granholm, what an honor to have you on the show. Thanks for doing this.
1: Oh my gosh, such a treat to be on with you, Preet. Thanks so much for the invitation. Oh,
0: and you rhyme
1: treat and Preet. I love it. <laughs> I was gonna,
0: I was gonna ask you about your own person, one of your personal habits. Am I correct that you drive or used to drive a Chevrolet Bolt electric vehicle?
1: I do. In fact, I have had an electric vehicle, so this is my third. I lease it, right? So it's my third bolt lease and before the bolt i had a chevy volt with a v and i had two of those again on leases of course uh, being the, the former governor of michigan i actually drove the first uh chevrolet volt off the assembly line um and and i i've been a That's fan a ever since yes <laughs> <laughs> does 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 elon musk
0: know that it's not
1: a tesla uh i i'm I don't know that he's keeping track, honestly. But <laughs> you don't care. You don't I don't care. care. I love this car. I mean, I love... Now, I'm not selling any particular brand, but I'm just saying, do you drive an electric vehicle?
0: Oh, good. Come I, on. I don't. Come I don't,
1: on, man.
0: I don't yet. I don't yet. Okay, don't. but it's well... And First there's of all, you can't list. get any vehicles
1: anymore. Right, right. There's yeah. waiting lists and all of that. And and now, but with the, the new bill, the new um, Inflation Reduction Act, you can get a used one for a fourth with a four thousand dollar credit uh but you have to be under certain income you have to have be 75 thousand dollars a year in income or less the car I'm has a little to be higher than
0: that like, yeah I know than so than you, that, like, you don't qualify <laughs> but you don't need it moment.
1: you don't need it
0: <laughs> I don't but so I was going to give you the choice interactive do you want to first talk about gas prices or about climate change
1: um I love climate change but you know I I'm totally happy to talk about either one let's Everybody do, let's do a few a let's level. do a
0: few questions about gas prices yeah for sure And then the larger questions So people have come on this show, and I've heard other experts say, who are not sort of part of partisan politics, that a president, in at least the short term, doesn't really have the ability to affect prices at the pump. And so this is a political football that is thrown back and forth, depending on who's in charge when the gas prices are up and who's in charge when the gas prices are down. Do you disagree with that?
1: Well, here's what I would say. It is true that that gas, of course, comes from oil, and oil is traded on a global market. And so the question is, how do you affect globally the price of oil? And the reason why, of course, the gas prices are so high and the oil prices per barrel are so high is because Russia was a major, has been a major exporter of oil. And countries like the United States and Canada and the EU all are saying, we don't want to take Russian oil. So therefore, you pull all all of this supply off the market that creates an upward pressure on prices which is why the president has one tool that is extraordinary at his disposal and that is releasing barrels of oil from the strategic petroleum reserve he's releasing a million barrels per day and has been for months now and so that has helped to stabilize even as he's calling for increased supply on the part of our domestic oil and gas producers as well as international oil and gas producers to try to replace those barrels of Russian oil that were pulled off the market.
0: Can you draw a straight line between that release and the cost of gas at the pump or no?
1: Well, it's, uh, I don't know how straight. I can tell you that increasing supply just as plain old economics, right? Increasing supply reduces price. And so he yeah. has been uh, at the forefront and he's orchestrated our allied nations to also release from their strategic petroleum reserves. So, so that increase in supply has a, a downward pressure on prices, but I will say this: We are all—all these leaders across the globe—are all experiencing the same thing. Um, We we are tracking all the prices of oil and gasoline across the country, and right now the U.S. is in a better position than other countries because we've also called for um, increase in refining capacity in the United States. A lot of refineries have been pulled off uh, the market, and now uh, we're speaking in the summer, and the price of gas has dropped every single day during the summer. Um, but if another, uh, if there's another uh, pressure uh, placed because of uh, global problems like China uh, opening up dramatically after their lockdown on COVID, that will create, again, more upward pressure on prices because you'll have an increase in demand.
0: Um, so I should note for the audience that you and I are speaking and recording this on Thursday, August 18th. The public won't hear this for another week. Are you prepared to predict that the price of gas will be less than it is now well, when okay. this releases?
1: So this on this day that we are speaking the price of <laughs> gas is $3.93. I can tell you this, that our, don't believe me, our, um, our energy information administration, which does all of the projection, has all the modeling. They're an independent source. They are saying that by the fourth quarter, that gas prices will be down to 378 a gallon. But again, with all the attenuating caveats, meaning that if there's some dramatic action globally that will create problems either on supply or demand, that will change.
0: That's fair enough. So You heard it here. Gas prices are going to continue to go down. Do they give you like the equivalent of a Fitbit or something that that marks not your steps, but the price of gas penny by penny every second of the day?
1: Well, I I get an email twice a day, once in the morning, once at night, that uh, says the price of fuels, including gasoline, so that I am monitoring it all the time.
0: So you can quote that at any time? Yes. A question I have more broadly, but it relates to this, Because at various times, members of the government have asked oil and gas companies to increase production. How do you think about, generally speaking, what the relationship should be in the world of energy between the government and private industry?
1: Well, obviously, the ability to be energy secure is an issue of national security. And so calling upon the private sector players who impact upon our national security is a natural relationship. I mean, we've had long conversations with members of the oil and gas industry to make sure supply is flowing, that they are increasing supply. But we don't own the oil and gas companies. That is just a fact. So it is the private sector that moves on it, but they respond to supply and demand as well. So for example, by next year, we will be at record levels of oil production. Now I say all of that knowing that we want to, To move into this clean energy space, right? So there's this immediate uh, tension between needing to increase supplies so that, you know, of oil and gas and of course natural gas. Um, We're seeing what's happening in Europe, the price of natural gas through the roof. And people want to be able to be assured that when they turn on the lights, the lights come on, that they can, they can get to work by filling up their car one way or the other. So, so we, there is a, we, we are going through a transition. And we know that fossil fuels will play a role in this transition, but on the other side of it, we want to be at 100% clean electricity, meaning zero carbon emitting technologies for for electricity by 2035, and then net zero carbon pollution by 2050. And that means a full-on transition.
0: We're going to come to that, but I'm just curious if you could explain what goes on behind the scenes. So So the president of the United States might make a public statement, oil and gas folks, raise your output. But then do you get on the phone? Yeah. And, and do you coax? Do you cajole? Do you yell? Like, what's the tone of those conversations when the government doesn't own the industry?
1: Yeah. I mean, we, we have, you know, it is, uh, uh, you know, we are pushing, they know, and they are, you know, honestly, they understand they have a responsibility uh, to provide energy as well. They've got customers, they've got employees. they want to be able to have supply and demand meet. However, let us be very clear, they ha- are clearly uh, enjoying record profits right now because of the, the pricing. Um, but they to, to be fair to them, they did pull down a lot of production during COVID and that means rigs. Mm -hmm. And that means they weren't pumping for oil because there wasn't demand. Nobody was driving. And so turning on those rigs after they've been off for a couple of years is not just flipping a switch either. And so we've continually been asking them to increase supply. Most of them are, and we've also pressured them, and most of them are, to to help with this transition to clean energy. And so, for example, if you have workers who understand what's beneath the surface because they've been drilling for oil and gas, they would be terrific to help us pull geothermal from beneath the surface, the heat beneath our feet, to be able to p- provide clean and renewable energy. So there are lots of parallels like that. If you're building offshore oil rigs in the Gulf to, to pull up oil, you can build offshore platforms for wind turbines. You have the skill set and the workers who know how to do that. So there's an awful lot of parallels that we are, we are also cajoling them on.
0: Are you one of the folks who criticizes that industry for reaping windfall profits as the prices have gone up?
1: Um, well, certainly we have asked for them to reinvest in production rather than reinvesting in shareholder buybacks. There is no question about that. The full administration has been doing that.
0: This is maybe a question that's hard to answer because you're not keeping billable hours, I presume, like
1: <laughs> no, folks in, in, not.
0: in law practice. But roughly speaking, if you can divide it this way, if this is a fair question, what percentage of your time as energy secretary do you spend in one way or another focused on the climate crisis?
1: Um, 95%? all of it? Yes, I spend a huge amount of my time. Now when I say that- You have to do
0: nukes. You have to take care of the nukes too. Of
1: course. But that's of course national security. Um, and national security folks will say that climate crisis is a really important part of that. But I have, um, unbelievable expertise inside the department on uh, the nuclear stockpile. And I've while I have visited all of the labs and all of the facilities uh, who are engaged in that, uh, I also allow the experts to take that on. And I focus uh, a lot of my time on, most of my time by far, uh, on climate energy clean, clean energy um and of course a component of that includes making sure we have enough energy and that might mean fossil fuels as well
0: right do, do you have a sense of how your 95 percent compares to the percentage with respect to the prior energy secretaries under the earlier
1: administration and i probably 95 probably is a little bit high as i hear myself talking i'm like well, come on you spent <laughs> <you spend time, laughs> right. a lot of time with them too but um i, I here's what i would say um the my, the my immediate um, procedure, the, uh, there were two people. One was Rick Perry. Of course, he was former governor of Texas, uh, was energy secretary. And then he um, left three years in, and the last year was uh, a fellow named Dan Brouillette, and he uh, had deep experience in the department. But it is clear to say that the Trump administration was focused more on oil and gas and, uh, you know, drill baby drill that kind of uh, production, as well as nuclear, they they wanted us to push uh, nuclear as well. Than they were on clean, but there are great components within the Department of Energy that are that are there permanently. So, for example, we have uh, our whole off a whole team that is focused on energy efficiency and renewable energy. It's called EERE, Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, and they're a very big component of the department and have been throughout administrations. So there has always been an Effort in every administration to focus on energy security, both through clean energy as well as through fossil fuels.
0: You mentioned nuclear. This is a fact I did not really know until I was preparing for this interview. So reportedly, about a hundred nuclear power plants provide 20% of the nation's power, which is also 50% of the nation's zero carbon emitting energy, half of the nation's zero carbon energy. So for that reason, you and others are pro-nuclear, right? Absolutely. Now, what do you say to people who are worried about safety or other issues related to nuclear?
1: Yeah, I'd say first, um, the United States has a gold standard regulatory regime, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. They are extremely uh, focused on safety. And we, um, we have not had... A uh, serious nuclear incident in the United States. Period. Not one where anybody was actually hurt. We want, but we are all over this. This is not something that you mess around with. It's not something that you you don't cite a nuclear pa- plant in a quick amount of time. It takes you a long time. It takes you a long time to get a license for even a nuclear design. So that's number one: is that it, we have an extremely uh, serious and rightfully so, regulatory regime more than any other country, and everybody looks to us as the gold standard. Number two, I'm uh, people I, understandably are concerned about it when they see issues like what happened with Fukushima, Chernobyl, other countries, etc. We don't, we are not citing uh, or using the practices that would get us into the, that position. But number three, what's what's really uh, I think hopeful about next generation nuclear? These are called small modular reactors. The designs, the uh, the safety, and the the waste stream. People are also very concerned about nuclear waste, of course, and we want to make sure that 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 there is as less uh, you know minimal waste as possible but that when we do produce waste, that it is stored in a way that is permanently safe. And so that issue I understand people's concern about, and we are engaged in a whole consent-based siting process to be able to store our nation's nuclear waste in a, a safe way that will not uh, pose any danger to it, to any state or community that raises their hand and says that they'd be willing to take it. Who are the
0: constituencies or subsets of constituencies that give you the hardest time about nuclear?
1: Well, I, th- I mean, I think every – I would say that um, – let's just say I think there has been um, a, a lot of our allies uh, – I say our allies, meaning people who have been very focused on green, um, you know, the green economy, who have been nervous about nuclear for the reasons we just discussed, either safety or waste – um, but I will say that this discussion is becoming a lot easier when we when we start to look at energy security. If you look at what's happened in Germany, you see they have shut they shut down their greens who have come into power, uh, shared governance, but they had sh- you know plans to shut all of their nuclear power plants down. But when you do that, you lose this massive source of clean, base-load, dispatchable, zero-carbon-emitting power. And so now they are faced with having to contemplate keeping those, uh, those nuclear plants online. All of these countries around the world are very interested in these small modular reactors and in starting up nuclear because they see our collective goals of getting to zero- you know, net zero carbon pollution. We need dis- we need baseload clean power to be able to do that. And that's why nuclear is absolutely on the tops of minds of energy ministers across the world.
0: Now, is nuclear, in your mind, part of the, the, the long-term permanent solution, or is it an intermediate step to getting to change uh, or reverse course on climate?
1: No, I think it is a piece of the long-term solution. I mean, I I often uh, refer to this as uh, the solution as silver buckshot, not a silver bullet. Um, Nuclear plays an important role But so does, obviously, wind and solar combined with storage of wind and solar, since those are intermediate resources. The sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow, and we have to really focus on the technology for long-duration, utility-scale storage of those resources. Geothermal is a potential uh, resource that could be exploited that is, again, simply clean baseload power. So is hydropower uh, through dams, the movement of, of water. Uh, the, there's a lot of interest in next-generation technologies to decarbonize, so maybe taking carbon pollution from the air and, and sequestering it, uh, taking carbon pollution from the point it is generated and putting it underground safely. Uh, using hydrogen, clean hydrogen as a form of baseload power, using waves, uh, movement of waves off the shore as a form of power. There's so many solutions that we are looking to, and we're, I'm excited about uh, almost all of them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, which ones are you not excited now, I
1: knew you were going to ask me that. I'm excited about all of them. Huh? The ones Nine, I mentioned, maybe I'm 95%. About yes, maybe 95% of
0: them. <laughs> yes. That's your go to number for the purposes oh of, this, of this interview. In, of this interview. <laughs> do you think net zero carbon by 2050 is realistic?
1: I do. I do, especially, uh, you know, the U.S., in, the, in passing the Inflation Reduction Act uh, and signing into the law last week, the U.S. Uh, is in this position to lead by example the world it is the biggest the biggest climate bill that has ever been signed into law in the world by far and certainly in the us by a factor of 10 so now we have the resources to be able to invest in these technologies and as i like to say deploy 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 as we move in this direction we this bill alone Um, combined with uh, the actions that are happening in the private sector already, and the states will get us to this 50% reduction in carbon pollution by 2030. And then we have another, you know, another 20 years to get the rest. And these technologies will snowball. Once we take New technologies, even to scale, obviously they that will perpetuate momentum. That perpetuates momentum. So yes, I think it's not. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. There's going to have to be a lot of activity and investment in this, but uh, I definitely think we are so much more able to do it now than we were before last week.
0: Speaking of new technologies, I'm not a scientist, and the worst grade I got in high school was in physics. Uh, So maybe this is totally off base, but do you have folks working on or who are optimistic about the possibility of power from nuclear fusion?
1: Yes. Yes, we do. How
0: far away is a breakthrough there, do you think?
1: Well, interestingly that you asked this, because in August, um, one of our our labs, so the Department of Energy has 17 national laboratories. One of them is, is the Lawrence Livermore National Lab, and they have a major fusion project. It was just validated that at that lab, they achieved last year what is called ignition, which means that it is the first step to achieving nuclear fusion. And for, you know, for your uh, listeners who may not be uh, so involved in nuclear, energy fusion is is sort of uh, bringing pushing atoms together and fission is tearing them apart, splitting them up, right? Yeah. And so the fusion um, option and the president has put a big plan together, a, a decadal vision to achieve fusion at a commercial scale, right? At a scale that will actually be usable because of what happened that, that experiment at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab. That is a big experiment, is the first step, but that's not a commercial project that will not lead to commercialization, at least uh, of the that facility. But it is a huge step forward. There's a similar step that's been taken in uh, England. Um, We know that there's a lot of steps between now and commercialization of fusion. But for folks who are listening, why do you care whether it's fusion or fission? Because fusion does not have the waste problem that I was describing uh, as the the current uh, suite of nuclear technologies produces. And that would be a game changer. Plus, it's so powerful.
0: And can you assure us that in the run-up to developing fusion capability, we're not going to blow up the planet? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) because...
1: Obviously, people, we are not going to blow up the planet. No, we we want to obviously do this. This is why it's a decadal vision. We want to make sure that this is done in the right way. Any new technology, uh, you want to make sure that you do not create, uh, obviously, a danger for people. So because it is such a big aspiration, um, this will be done in an extremely cautious manner.
0: We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Secretary Granholm after this.
2: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline.
0: Okay, so now let's get to the Inflation Reduction Act that I know you're dying to talk about although maybe 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 it's better called the Carbon Reduction Act I don't know I know the way you're talking about it <laughs> My first question about it though is is a broad one and that is you know this got passed in the House passed in the Senate some people were surprised by that and it's becoming law but the way it's going about making all this progress in the areas that you've mentioned is through tax incentives rather than tax penalties. It's almost all carrot and no stick. And and so my question is, why don't we always do that? Does, does that make it a better policy and a more acceptable policy?
1: Well, here's what I'd say. I, I I like the carrot approach because you get much more buy-in uh, from people. People see it as an opportunity rather than a punishment. There is a little bit of a stick in here. It's not just a little. There is the first time we've ever put a fee on methane. Methane, of course, being a very potent greenhouse gas, gas that often results from the extraction of, for example, natural gas uh, and oil. Um, so there is a penalty. That that piece of things, there's a penalty. But but And the regulatory side is important. But when you are talking about the level of investment and uh, deployment that's necessary, having sticks that incentive, I'm, excuse me, carrots that incentivize the investments is 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 very effective. And we'll see the proof will be in the pudding. But these are are very generous incentives to be able to get there. This is why we'll be able to see the level of carbon pollution reduction and the a- addition. I mean, Preet, we have got to add. We've got to triple, essentially, almost triple the size of our electric grid with clean energy by 2050 to reach these goals. You know that this is going to be, by 2030 alone, it's going to be a $27 trillion global market for the products that will reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Oh my gosh, what an amazing opportunity for businesses. And so incentivizing the business community to to really dive in to clean energy deployment is, a, is an effective strategy, and we will see, I think, massive uh, improvement in adding clean energy to the grid as a result of this bill. What about other countries? And other countries have got to do the same. So, you know, for example, uh, in Australia in August, uh, they are doing the same, a similar thing, incentivizing the production of clean and really setting high goals to be able to get to 100% clean electricity. They're doing a very bold bill. Um, Others, as we go, for example, to the, the Conference on the Parties, the COP meetings globally that really... Um, encourage countries to meet these high aspirations. When, when the United States says, we're going to do this and we're going to help you with technology, we're going to help you achieve your aspirations because we do have these, for example, 17 national labs that can help roadmap what the best ways is for countries to meet their, their aspirations. Many countries are, have already done that. Uh, all these countries signed on to the Paris Agreement and they just now need to make sure they can deploy the, enough clean energy to get to those aspirations. So it is, uh, it is a global effort. And the U.S. is now really in a position to lead by example.
0: So forget about other countries for a moment. Let's bring it back domestically. How do you get members of the Republican Party who are elected to Congress to believe the same things?
1: honestly, many of them will tell you that they believe in all of the above. And that means, I mean, and so many of them will tell you that. And that means, yes, they want to continue to invest in fossil fuels, but they also want to move in the direction of clean energy. Many of um, yeah, but the, where are
0: But where are their votes?
1: Well, right, because uh, they'll find many reasons not to give uh, Joe Biden a, a victory, right? Yeah. But But they know that this, I mean, for example- in Wyoming, Senator Barrasso, who is uh, obviously a very strong Republican, and Wyoming has been a coal producing state. But uh, there was a recent announcement that there is going to be a small uh, advanced modular reactor, nuclear reactor, put adjacent to or on a former coal plant and hire people in Wyoming to run that plant that is called terra power it's being funded by bill gates and and uh, senator barrasso is all in on that those states uh, up who that produce a lot of wind texas is an um, a republican state amazing uh, produ- production of wind and solar out of texas so they see the opportunity in their states for people to be employed and they see the opportunity to be able to invest in this next generation technology you better believe that all of these senators for example in that bipartisan infrastructure law there's 62 billion dollars there for next generation technologies that are that are clean that there was a reason i was bipartisan is because they see the opportunity of investing in clean hydrogen and creating hydrogen hubs across the country so there is bipartisan support for a lot of these technologies there just wasn't bipartisan support for the inflation reduction act
0: can you clear something up for us since you, you mentioned it and it just popped into my head? Uh, windmills cause cancer or no?
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: No. Look, we had to have a cabinet member come I appreciate, and, I appreciate and debunk you
1: asking, yes. The myth. The
0: ridiculous um, myth. <laughs> <laughs> okay. With much laughter, I, I note for the record. <laughs> when you talk about this movement away from legacy energy industries, you know there are a lot of people who in good faith are connected to those industries. yes. And they're worried about loss of jobs, and so this is not a policy question; it's a it's a language question. How how do you talk about it to people who wonder what's going to happen to their communities, what's going to happen to their jobs, and how did you do that in Michigan?
1: Yeah, this is such a great it's a great parallel because when I was governor of Michigan, of course, the domestic auto industry uh, went into bankruptcy. And a a lot of that was, um, there was market forces doing that, but it was a huge problem. And that we produced a product that relied upon fossil fuels, which is the internal combustion engine for the, for the auto industry. What, what we were saying to folks who could see it happening on the ground, and this is true in West Virginia, people see what the market is doing. They see where, um, where their kids are telling them they'd rather work. Yeah. Uh, so it's not it, it's not even that government has to go in. The market is moving in a direction toward clean. All of the, you know, the the efforts by on ESG by companies to make sure that they're investing in clean and and energy efficiency, it's not a mystery. What what we say to them is we want you, we are so grateful that you have powered this country for the past 100 years or more. And we want you to power this country for the next 100 years using clean energy. And there are skills matched jobs that you can be fully employed in, and your family can be, your kids can get jobs in this sector. And we want you to see yourself. So, in these hydrogen hubs, we want you to be able to work in that industry. Because it's comparable. We want you to be able to install the equipment that removes carbon from the atmosphere and live in it. We want you to be able to extract geothermal from beneath the surface. We want you to be able to work uh, in, on installing the offshore and onshore wind turbines. We want you to be able to manufacture the the products that will get us to that clean energy future, there is, from this bill, from this, what the Biden administration has done in clean energy, there will be 1 million jobs a year created in the, for the next 10 years, or nine, 900,000 jobs created is what the projections are for the next 10 years. So so 9 mil, million jobs created. And they're going to be in all pockets of the country. And we want people who have powered our nation to feel and see themselves in that future. And that's why part of the effort is to make sure there's apprenticeships attached to these clean energy technologies so people can move and get paid while they learn what that technology is and how to work in that sector. So it's a it's a huge opportunity for people. And we don't want, and I mean, one other thing I would say, Preet, is that, we, fossil fuels are going to be around. This is called the transition for a reason. And even by 2050, the reason why the goal is net zero is because some areas will always be dependent upon fossil fuels. The question is, can we decarbonize those fossil fuels? Are there ways to be able to get to net zero? So, And even the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has said, you ha- you can't get there unless you have carbon pollution capture and and sequestering it beneath the earth.
0: Is there somewhere on your desk or in a drawer in your desk a pie chart that someone has put together that allocates or purports to allocate the ideal energy sources for the country for the for the world as between wind, solar, geothermal, nuclear, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? Is that not something that people think about? What, what no, the people ideal- do think about it. Yeah. I mean,
1: you know, there is. Um- There's projections based on what we know now. We know that the growth, for example, of solar in particular is just huge. And it has to be coupled with with storage, with batteries. And the question is, on the batteries, what what goes into those batteries? Or can it be abundant materials that are not precious, that are not critical minerals, for example. You know, and that technology is being worked on now, and it's just starting to come into the deployment or demonstration space from the labs. But but clearly, the renewable, clean power that the sun is shooting at us every day or the wind is providing every day are the cheapest form of power. And so the most it's the preferable po- form of power, but uh, it's not always gonna necess- it's not going to just end up being that. It's going to be this suite of technologies that you can toggle between depending on how the resource is providing. If it's a rainy day and we're not getting as much sun, uh, if it's during the winter and the days are not as long, what can we toggle in to be able to supplement and make sure that we have 100 percent clean electricity all the time?:
0: We always have to be diversified. Yep, we do. Is there any worry? I don't want to alarm people, but to the extent that this is, uh, you know, not in the Constitution, these are laws that have been passed and incentives that have been put into pr- that'll be put into practice. If a different guy with a different agenda and different policies gets elected in 2024 or reelected, and you know who I'm talking about, what if anything in in this Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, is at risk?
1: Yeah. I mean, you'd have to have obviously a supportive House and Senate. And that is just, I uh, hope, I, I mean, I'm, I would venture to guess that that's not likely. Uh, and, and the reason why is because Democrats and Republicans across the country support this bill. Republicans support it over 50%. I want to say almost I, – I, I want to say it's above 50% significantly. Um, obviously, independents and Democrats do as well. It would be, um, I would imagine, a political disaster for somebody to come in and undo it, especially once these projects have been awarded. It's, you can't undo that from a legal perspective because people have made actions, taken actions based upon that promise.
0: Yeah, so let's so, award those contracts quick.
1: Yeah, we're working on that.
0: You're working on that. Um, (laughs) You have talked about one of your top priorities is what you refer to as energy justice. What does that mean?
1: Yeah, so it is really important that we acknowledge that there are communities that have been disproportionately negatively affected by carbon pollution Uh, And we want to make sure that we do right by those communities. So the president has committed that 40% of the benefits of these investments from both the bipartisan infrastructure law, as well as the Inflation Reduction Act, and on the climate space, that's over $420 billion worth of investments, that 40% of the benefits from those investments accrue to those communities that have been left behind. And it could be communities as well that are in transition. So coal communities, we can't leave those those workers behind. If there is a movement away from, from uh, oil and gas, we can't leave those communities behind either. So the president really wants to make sure that we give opportunity in all pockets of this country, but especially prioritizing communities that have been negatively affected.
0: Final question. We have a lot of listeners. And they are consumers also, and you mentioned one example of this at the start of the interview. But under the Inflation Reduction Act, what are the particular kinds of things that people are listening right now can do, get by with those incentives or those subsidies? You want to I a love this question. a couple of things, yes. but they can literally they can stop listening to this interview and they can go out and get some stuff.
1: Yeah. Well. So. So first of all. There's a big emphasis on being able to retrofit your home with energy-efficient appliances and uh, to put solar on your roof. So if you want to put solar on your roof, you can do it today and you'll get a 30% tax credit. If you are a low-income, if you come from a low-income household, you can go to the weatherization assistance program in your area through a community action agency and have your whole home retrofitted with efficient appliances you know insulation light bulbs even in some cases solar and that will not cost you anything if you are somebody who wants to who can wait um, for a few months until we write the rules on the rebates because there will be rebates for consumers if they purchase for example uh, uh, an electric heat pump. If you want to replace your HVAC system with a much more efficient uh, electric heat pump, that will be available. Similarly with uh, energy efficient um, and electric stoves. So there's all sorts of stuff coming in related to your home and reducing the cost, You're reducing your energy bills uh, every month. And then the second piece quickly to say is there is an awful lot of incentives about electrification of your transportation. And that means there's a $7,500 dollar Tax, uh, direct off-the-top uh, credit. I I mentioned the $4,000 one for for used electric vehicles. There's also one for new electric vehicles. If your income is less than $150,000 and the vehicle is less than $55,000, you can have a, a credit starting in January for electric vehicles. Now, the catch on that is that the electric vehicle companies, the, 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 the manufacturers, have got to ensure that the content of that car is largely produced in the United States. And that may take them a little bit of a while to catch up, Uh to bring home, to reshore some of the manufacturing capacity that they have sent overseas. And that's part of the purpose of this bill is to get a whole manufacturing supply chain around the building of the products that get us to this clean energy future as we create a whole new economic sector in the United States.
0: Well, people have their marching orders. (laughs)
1: Listen
0: to the end and then go get some stuff. Madam Secretary, Jennifer Granholm, what a pleasure it was to have you. I hope I can say of myself, longtime fan, first-time caller. Thanks for being on the show. Love it,
1: Preet. Thanks so much (laughs) for having me on. All right, take care. I
0: want to end the show this week by talking about something that struck me from the world of sports. No, it wasn't news about a big game or player. It was the news that the NBA will hold no games on Election Day this year in an effort to encourage their players, staff, and fans to go out and vote in the midterms. The NBA usually doesn't change its schedule to accommodate events like Election Day. But this year, the league decided to do so. A statement from the league on Twitter read, The scheduling decision came out of the NBA family's focus on promoting nonpartisan civic engagement and encouraging fans to make a plan to vote during midterm elections. And while the league hasn't taken an action quite like this before, they have tried in the past to promote voter turnout, notably by converting a handful of their arenas into voting locations for the 2020 election. Initiatives like this matter. Whether it's one person, one league, or one company encouraging others to vote and taking the necessary actions to ensure they actually can vote, it makes a difference. The midterms, as you know, are in full swing. We've just had our second primary election here in New York this week, I voted early on Sunday, and there are only a few primaries left across the country ahead of the November 8th election. We'll have more robust election coverage coming up, but in the meantime, I wanted to make one note. I know there's a lot of anxiety about the midterms and whether Democrats can hold on to the House or the Senate, but I'll say something, folks, the tides keep changing. A lot of people had assumed a red blowout, but there may be more reason to remain hopeful and work for the outcome you want. We saw that in Kansas recently, where unexpectedly large voter turnout in the traditionally conservative state chose to protect abortion rights. And after many recent polls, there's a slight blue tilt to the key Senate races. Mitch McConnell himself is lowering expectations for GOP domination in November. He said last week in Kentucky, there's probably a greater likelihood the House flips than the Senate, signaling that the quality of the Republican Senate candidates just may not be strong enough to turn it red. This is all to say, do not give up, get involved, and of course, get out and vote. And more than that, you can help your friends and family vote, volunteer to call voters in swing states, or donate to key races if you're able. Let's commend the NBA for its commitment to promoting civic engagement, and I hope it inspires others to find ways to get involved in this crucial election cycle. There's a lot of work to be done to preserve our democratic institutions, and it'll take all of us. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, U.S. Energy Secretary, Jennifer Granholm. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters cafecom Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The editorial producers are Sam ozer and Noah Azalai. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Jake Kaplan, Namita Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Barara. Stay tuned.